So today is the Nandotsuva and also the appearance day of Shri Bhakti Vedanta Swami Prabhupada. And um, so we'll speak a little bit about about both the Nandotsuva. Utsuva means festival and Nanda means joy. This Nandotsuva, the, the joyful festival. And Nand, Nanda refers also to the, the father of Krishna, Nanda. Nanda Baba, Nanda Maharaj, who was the leader of the cowherd community. And as we heard briefly last night, Krishna appeared at midnight. So the labor was going on and Nanda Maharaj was a bit removed given the customs at the time with regard to childbirth. And it was in the morning then that... uh, while in the cow shed, he was informed by the nurse uh, on hand, the, uh, the nurse, that uh, by different signs and by her very appearance, the way she had dressed herself and decorated herself, this is the type of, type of body language she had, to use a term today, that, that uh, a son had been born. Him. And this was, of course, a huge uh, event for the community because the, the, the king, so to speak, of the cowherds, the leader of the community, his, uh, who was ruling over the, uh, uh, presiding, I should say, over the uh, group with such benevolence and uh, insight and, and wisdom. He was the middle son of... Uh, Parjanya, who had five sons, and the eldest son, the tradition would be, was such that the eldest son would be the heir to the to the throne or the successor in the leadership. And um, that oldest son was named Upananda, and he was, there was a ceremony to establish that, as per the custom, he would be the successor. And on the, fir- the first uh, act that he first mandate from from his from his leadership was that uh, that that the middle son would be given the, the the leadership. He said, "After all, I am only an upananda. An upa is a prefix; it can mean enough number of things. But here he meant, I'm only a little nanda. I have only a little amount of joy and ecstasy compared to this middle son." So everybody was very pleased with such and. Imagine what a nice community it was, uh, with such uh, such goings on and feeling and the absence, kind of, of the desire for distinction and adoration and, and so forth. And uh, so, a very special uh, king, and, and again, according to the, sust- the system, his son would be the successor. But as Nanda Maharaj presided, along with Yashodarani, his good. Uh, wife, for years and years and years, there was no son. So it started to become a kind of a unspoken issue 
in the community, and everyone wanted the, the Nana Marsh to have a son. And um, they, at one point, Nanda Marsh pulled his wife aside and said, I think this is the problem, that the reason we can't have a son. They had no issue, but every time he said, I start to think about how, what kind of a son I could have, and, and, and physical things, you know, they begin conceptually in the mind, what we think about and we will become and and uh, we will attain and so forth. So he said, every time I think of a son, I get this vision of the, of a son who's more beautiful than Narayan. And Narayan is God. God, and it was the God of the how the deity of Narayan and the Shingabhatar of Narayan in, in the house. So every time I think of having a son, I get this idea. I have a son who'd be more beautiful than Narayan, more, more charming, and and, and then I realized that's impossible. I mean, God is the most uh, you know charming, and, and so I give up my, my. Uh, my thinking about it is if it's uh, I'm wasting my time, and, and his wife said, "Same thing happens to me." So, so what to do? They thought, and they made a pact then to take a vow, but uh, for the kind of a, a, consisted of a year-long vow of different fasting and so forth, and in glorification of Narayan, a kind of a petition to Narayan to do with us what you see fit. This is our, you know, problem, our our issue, and we put ourselves in your hands. It's an issue for the whole community. And um, I guess we're the problem because we keep thinking, you know, this impossible idea and so forth. So for one year, they followed this this vow and they were, it, it required quite a bit of um, restraint, uh, sensual restraint and, and so forth um, in, in many respects. So they were very you know, kind of uh, yogic and uh, if you will, and uh, after uh, about a year's time, they had a dream, and then we, each of them separately in the dream, Narayan came and said, he "says you you'll have a son," and uh, and then uh, this um, Yashoda, who had been living a very controlled life, very restrained life, suddenly f- found herself d- desiring milk sweets and and. Um, all types of rich foods and so forth, likes of which, of course, Krishna had a pension for, as it turns out, and uh, and so they were having a son, and and so on. As I say, it was a big event because now the nursemaid came and gave indication that a son has been born, and this was the whole community. This was an unspoken kind of a problem: who's going to be the successor, and um, we want Nanda Marsh to have a son, and be uh, non an offspring of that uh, the kind of ecstasy and, and bliss that he and benevolence and kindness and love that he's um, shown us and and so this was a huge event and uh, an announcement uh, and Nanda was brought into the to the maternity ward and in the house and and so forth and then the announcement rippled throughout the whole community and the kettle drums were beating and so forth this is the Nandots of them so today. Is a day that the big festival is held in Nanda Maharaj's house, and um, of course, then in the Nitya Lila and Eternal Lila, it's held every year on this day, and all the uh, inhabitants from the different parts of the community are in, are invited and so forth. It's celebrated in great uh, pomp and uh, 
and uh, there's so much milk and foodstuffs and so forth that they um, we don't do it here, but <laughs> might try it sometime. They have a particular festival of splashing yogurt and milk everywhere on everyone and turmeric water and and so forth and uh, it's quite a fun. <laughs> so big uh, celebration. This is the Nandotsava. And it so happens that um, my Guru Maharaj was, um, brought this lineage to the Western world outside of India for the first time. Really, uh, he was born on the day of Nandotsava. So we always look at it as a doubly special day and uh, uh, as Providence would have. But we, we, you know, we, we put some, I think appropriately so, some extra meaning into that, that he appeared on this day and... Uh, and um, and was destined to um, to do to make a big festival <laughs> in uh, in celebration of the appearance of Krishna in his own heart and take it uh, wide and and uh, far and deep I would say and uh, and broad as well far in outreach and uh, and I, I my own personal experience is what he that was that he he often struggled. In his, in the broadness of his outreach, because it required wrestling himself down from or up from the depths of his own preoccupation, um, and this is a symptom, uh, in my estimation, of, of a great person. It's one thing to talk about that which one is preoccupied with, and another thing to be preoccupied with something that's beyond the can of most people, but come down to their level to try to communicate it uh, to them and to, and to circulate it and so forth. And um, this is what he, what he did. This was his, it turned out to be his life's mission at the time of his birth, as was the system even then. This was probably about, what, 1896, I think. An interesting year, also from another point of view, from our sympathetic and uh, loving and subjective point of view, not that there's no objectivity to it, but on that year it so happened in 1896 that the great Bhaktivinoda, who was the, the guru of my guru's guru, and who was the first person to start to interface the teachings of Sri Chaitanya, the with the modern world, with the British occupation of uh, India, and he he wrote letters to Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau, and Emerson to share his thoughts on uh, because he had heard you know some news that these people were had a, a some sensibility about these things. They are called, of course, the first American transcendentalists. You may, as you may be aware, so he wrote to them. And he penned a book called Life and Precepts of Sri Chaitanya. Small book. And on the year 1896, it showed up in McGill University in, in Canada. So it was like the first book from millennia. This is the same year that Prabhupada appeared in the world. So, you know, we tend to, loving people tend to put those things together about their objects of love and find reason then to love them that much more. Meaning, where others may, may see it to one extent or, or not. So, 
my rumors used to call his mission the mission, the extension of the mission of, of Bhakti Vinod. This was a huge thing for the Gaudiya tradition um, to, as I say, interface with with the modern world. Um, and everybody who's touched by this lineage in one way or other who have found their... And it's many-branched also. Ours is one sect within a larger branch of... Uh, or a larger tree, one branch into a larger tree of... Bodhi Vaishnavism, and anybody who's connected with that tree, if you will, these days, internationally speaking, owes and acknowledges some some debt to our particular branch through which this uh, outreach came to the Western world, in, in which the vision to make that interface and the depth of realization and insight to do that, that requires a lot because um, to talk about your tradition and realization in a language then that is different than from the one I don't mean I don't mean like Bengali or English but in terminology to put that into words in a modern context and and enable people and help people to make sense out of it and get a grip on that and so forth. this requires some depth some some insight some realization some real acquaintance with the subject matter I mean you may sit and and be preoccupied with it to one extent or another, but when you try to explain it to someone else, then the extent to which you've understood it, <laughs> they will come to bear. And the ability to communicate it and share it and and um, and make it, for that matter, uh, contagious, uh, the capacity to do that is is, a, is an indication of some real acquaintance with the uh, with the subject matter. After all, it is universal, and um, it, it may appear in a particular cultural context, but it has universal application, so it will be applied differently in different cultural contexts. So we find that even in India, that Gaudiya Vaishnavism is practiced by the Manipuri, Manipuri, that's a one state in India. Gaudiya is in a particular way, with particular cultural trappings, and in, in the South, and in Bengal, in a different way, and and so forth. So, um, but it's a greater leap, of course, to take it outside of India to the Western world, where they're not acquainted with these ideas and so forth. So, it's a huge thing. Our particular lineage, we have the, the pride, the kind of the spiritual pride of being members of a mini- lineage that that gave it currency in the uh, in the modern uh, world and in the postmodern world. It's it's uh, staying alive and well. And, you know, previous to that, not that it wasn't alive and well, but it was nonetheless viewed from a from a worldly planetary point of view, uh, if at all, as some obscure religious tradition in in, uh, in West Bengal and and uh, and on the other side of India, in the little village of Vrindavan, where Krishna appeared and so forth. And incidentally, that also is significant about uh, Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Gaudiya Vaishnavism is the lineage that uh, founded by Sri Chaitanya, who we see as the appearance of Radha and Krishna combined. We touched on that briefly yesterday in the world, that kind of moment of ecstasy of the two, the one becoming two and the two again becoming one in a dynamic way and so forth. Um, they have, that lineage, our lineage, made this Vrindavan place of Krishna's appearance uh, kind of Excavated the uh, the uh, the places of his leelas by spiritual vision, 
about 500 years ago and, and made them made, made Vrindavan a very popular place. If you go there, you find all these old temples and bathing ghats and monuments. And these were all built by kings whose patronage was um, the, uh, the Goswamis of our lineage, the immediate followers of Chaitanya, were able to capture. And it was such that at the time that if you were a king, you know, it's not how much money you have, but how you spend it that determines your wealth and your taste and your your culture and your position in society. So it was such that if you didn't have a temple for your queen, at least, your Rani, in Vrindavan, you were nobody. Whatever part of India you, you Hindu king came. So they were able to, at their time, at that time, to present the ecstasy of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in such a way to translate it into literature and personify it in such a way that they captured the patronage of leading people of the world in the society. So again, that's some measure of the strength and depth of someone's um, realization. And then some 500 years later, again, this Bhakti Thakur, I'm mentioning our kind of grand, my grand spiritual, uh, great-grand spiritual father, he had the vision to interface this with the Western world and wrote about it and spoke about it and personified it in such a way that it that it, it, it indeed had some um, some currency, and from there his disciple Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur gave the shape to the idea of of Bhakti Vinod to, to present it in contemporary language and so forth. And it was went to to Britain, which was the leading country in the world at that time. It was said there's nowhere that the sun doesn't shine on the British Empire at that time. And now it never shines there, so <laughs> these, things, these regimes come and go. And then anyway, our Guru Marsh came after that in succession and took the whole thing all over the world in, in a very broad uh, and dynamic outreach. And during his time, you know, he, he was uh, able to um, captivate the, the uh, get the attention of the leading kind of Offbeat thinkers of the society, the Allen Ginsbergs and um, and the um, the George Harrisons and so forth, and uh, and other such um, maybe not as well known, but in a similar leaning of thinking type of people who were actually the kind of cutting edge people of the time, the Beat Generation, and then. And then the uh, hippies and so forth. And he took his message to uh, it, it. It began to take root. He came on a boat. Actually, he had uh, was living as a family man and an initiated member of his Guru Maharaj's mission, the Gaudiamat. And he um, had a real desire to be a meaningful. Disciple and do something, uh, some service that would be endear him to his uh, his guru. So, on one occasion, uh, while visiting the holy Vrindavan and doing the circumambulation of it, as they would do from for the day, they would circumambulate and stop and camp, and then they would come to a place where Krishna was said to have done this leela here, and then there would be a lecture about that, and they would go to the next place and take about a month to go all the way around. So. This is how they would spend their time, not a bad uh, use of time. And uh, on one of those occasions, 
Prabhupada Bhakti Siddhanta said to our Guru Maharaj that something, if you ever get money, print books about Krishna. And another occasion he wrote him a letter in response to a letter that where he asked if there any service he could do, and Bhakti Siddhanta wrote back to him and said, I think it would be good for you and, and for others if you spoke about Gaudiya Vaishnavism in English. So he took these kind of few words, Guru Mukha Padma Bhokya Chite Te Koriyai we sang. He took the words coming from the lotus mouth of his guru, like my life and soul. He like hung on to that. It's said that in a, in a, in one sentence from the guru, everything can is potentially contained. So he had a sense of that, and, and he took the one two suggestions and made them the orders of his life, so to speak. So, in due course of time, even in family life, he was after the departure of Bhakti Siddhanta from the world, he was translating the Gita and all, I'm telling you, all of his spare time and all of his, how you call it, um, not downtime, but um, with regard to money, disposable income. He disposed it all at the feet of the mission. Uh, and uh, and he was uh, translating Bhagavad Gita and, uh, and he, he kept the Bhagavad always in his home and would... Uh, study from that. He was born in a family of, of Gaudiya Vaishnavas, a family of transcendentalists. This type of birth is considered very rare in the Gita. Krishna speaks about it at the very end of the sixth chapter, that uh, to be born in the Kule Bhavati Dhimata, to be born in a family of transcendentalists uh, is very rare. So his father was a Gaudiya Vaishnava in a lineage of, of um, coming from the um, Goddess of Gopals, the Uddharana Dutta, one of the immediate, uh, one of the eternal associates of Nithyananda Prabhu, who was in a Sakya, Sakya friendly relationship with Krishna. It said, as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who was Radha and Krishna combined, appeared in the world, all of Radha and Krishna's associates appeared with them in Bengal. And this Nadia, where they appeared in Navadvip, it's non-different from Vrindavan, where Krishna appeared to perform his lila. The only difference between it is that it's imbued with a great magnanimity, because this Navadvip lila, which is the, causes the avatar of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, if you look at where it is in Krishna lila, where it has its origin, it's in the very depths of the uh, uh, Krishna lila, where Krishna is having that kind of existential crisis I mentioned yesterday in brief, who am I? And what is Radha's love for me? And what is the measure of that? And, and, and from there, this, he becomes as Chaitanya, Krishna with the mood of Radha and the complexion of Radha and so forth. And then he makes overflows into the world, makes his ex- appearance in the world, and he's really kind of searching himself out. It's, and uh, and, uh, and because Krishna's associates, all coming, Radha's associates, all coming with him and appearing. To, and so, one of those associates, any of them formed, formed, formed lineages, and these are the beginning lineages of Gaudiya Vaishnavism about 500 years ago. Not that the idea, the concepts don't date back further, they do, and we trace our lineage in another way further back, but from Chaitanya Mahaprabhu on is one way to trace the lineage 500 years ago. So, from one of these associates, Prabhupada was, appeared in a family that was connected with that particular lineage. So it's a very auspicious birth to begin with. His father always would invite sadhus to his house um, whenever they were passing by. And 
try to get their company and ask them, please bless my son, he'll become a good servant of Radharani. So, uh, of Radha. So, then, as I say, he joined the mission of his his Guru Maharaj, and uh, there were many sadhus that he met in his life, and not all of them were that saintly. His father was pretty generous. He would invite them. Anyone who looked like a saintly person, he would invite him. That's a good quality, too. But his son found that not all of them were that saintly. But one day, if an acquaintance told him, there's a different kind of sadhu in town, you should come and see him. Hmm? He said, I've seen so many sadhus at my father's house. Hmm? Hmm? And meanwhile, Gandhi's making a movement for Swaraj, for liberation of India, and I'm giving my energy for that. This is a high, noble concept. And that fellow said, no, you should come. This is a different kind of sadhu. So he went. He heard once from Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasri Thakur, and he agreed, this is a different kind of sadhu. And it made, in his estimation, Gandhi's movement look small-minded in comparison. And that was a big and a great thing, socially, politically, and kind of somewhat spiritually also. There were the ahimsas there and... Uh, you know, he was a religious Hindu and so forth, but his idea of liberation, Swaraj, for India, it's a little short of the kind of liberation that, uh, what is mukti, what is prem, liberation from the idea that I'm an Indian. That goes a little further than being freed from the British oppression and the freedom to be an Indian and all of that might, might culturally and socially mean, nationally mean, Later on, during World War II, when our Guru Maharaj was, was beginning his preaching, he, he, he wrote and edited and begged money to publish, to print and publish a magazine called Back to Godhead. And when he wrote about the forming of the magazine in great humility and how he was encouraged by other God uh, siblings of his to, to do such and and uh, how he thought he was unqualified, and so on and so forth. Um, he wrote about the, this, um, like how he came to write about the Back to Godhead magazine, and what was the point? That, um, anyway, um, to write the Back to Godhead magazine, this was his first outreach, I guess it was during World War II, Kind of to the to the world, which was kind of the, had become the standard of the lineage. Bhakti Vinod had begun the inter, begun the interface with the Western world. Bhakti Siddhanta, his guru, uh, which was the guru of of Prabhupada, then he had sent a missionary to London for the first time, and he met with uh, the big dignitaries in Britain and uh, and um, presented Gaudiya Vaishnavism to them in a way that they started to take notice. A different kind of sadhu. I read a letter once from an English lady many years ago who met Bhakti Siddhanta, this is the guru of, of my guru, and she said, she was writing it to her contemporaries, uh, friends from England, and she said, he's different. This one is different. He, I mean, he had some like English sensibility. In other words, he was bringing the tradition into like modern kind of a presentation in the contemporary way, and she was compelled, and she said, he even has a British toilet. Hmm? <laughs> Like this, and uh, and uh, <laughs> it's a different system. They have, um, and uh, he wore patent leather shoes. Not that he, he because he he, want, he thought well, people with these English people they wear patent leather shoes. So I right, we would dress a little bit like them or something like that. He drove in a motor car 
which was never a sadhu would wear any shoes or drive, take any motorized or any uh, means of conveyance other than the feet. And there's some wisdom to that and so forth and so on. But, but that won't give you a lot of currency with the modern world. At least It might now these days. We're so frustrated <laughs> with modernity and uh, industrialization and so forth. But this was, you know, more than, uh, more than 100, about 100 years ago. And um, so motor cars were just starting to happen and, and whatnot. And, uh, and so it was like a very different kind of presentation. And his idea was, what is renunciation? In the context of bhakti, he said, renunciation is giving up things that aren't favorable for bhakti. But if a thing can be used in bhakti, then we have no, no objection. If we can use a motor car, for distributing bhakti, then we'll, we'll use it. And it will become like a like the poetic flower airplanes of the, the talked about in the scriptures, something like that. So he was it, u- utilizing the modern conveyances, kind of like you take a thorn to take out a thorn if you don't have another thorn, you know, something else. So you pick a thorn and try to take out a thorn, something like that. So not to be used by modernity and... Uh, and its conventions, but to use it in such a way as to make um, try to make more sense to people that, in the name of progress, were moving away from their own self. So, Prabhupada, following in this spirit, was trying to reach out, and and uh, and his guru had told him to try to speak in English. So he's writing this magazine. He had no money. At this point, he was retired in Vrindavan. He was a family man, as I said. But he would, in order to maintain his family, he had a, uh, he was uh, um, working like as a chemist in a, in, a, in a pharmacy, and every, like they say, every spare, extra disposable bit of income he had, he would give to the mission, which didn't please his wife that much. Um, but he was, you know, that's the kind of person he was, and so forth. So anyway, one day he came back home, and his wife had sold his Bhagavatam, which was his life, the Bhagavat, which is all the leelas of Krishna. He would just read this and relish it and cry and so forth. And she sold it for tea biscuits. So he said, it's, it's tea or me. I am what I am. This is my destiny. I am, I'm living for the Bhagavat. And if you can live around that, you know, then uh, that's going to be meaningful. And otherwise, if you want tea, you know, that's not for me. I don't even drink this stuff, he, you know, he said. So, so one day he just walked out. He just walked out. And people thought, where's that guy gone? The neighbor. What did he do? He just walked away. He went uh, to Vrindavan, he took, which is the holy place of Krishna's pastimes. He took up some residence there, became a beggar there. No income, just depending on Krishna. The system was called Madhukari. You go from house to house like a bee goes from flower to flower. Madhu kari. It means honey work. Kari means to do. Do honey. To doing the So uh, madhu means honey. So the bees, this is the work they do. They make honey, right? And they go from flower to flower and take little... What they do is they collect little pollen, of course, and then they turn into honey. So the sadhu would, in this kind of situation, he does madhu kari, means... He or she goes door to door and just begs for their livelihood, whatever food will be given. And they don't stay at any one place, like the bee doesn't stay in any flower too long, that they might be purchased by that person. Oh, you can have all you can eat here. Full meal. Come every day here. 
then there's a chance it might become attached to that home and be kind of purchased by that material facility and so forth. Once on a side note, I was with one of my godbrothers and he was living in Vrindavan and we went out visiting holy places together and he said, you know, that village over there is really good for Madhukari. I said, you're not doing Madhukari. That is not Madhukari. If you start thinking, they give more chapatis in that village over there, see, then you miss the whole point of it. The point is to be dependent and 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 really depend on Krishna. That's where the madhu comes from then. That's where the honey comes from. Because when you do it in the right spirit, then that what sustenance you get from that, what pollen you get from that flower, then you you, that you have the capacity to turn that into into real real honey, to use that energy in a way to, to make something sweet, some realization about spiritual life that you can share with other people and so forth. So Prabhupada was doing like this, real, real madhukari, and... Um, and at one point he got residence in the, in the Radha Damodar temple, which is a famous temple formed by Jiva Goswami, one of the great literary giants of our, of our lineage at the time of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, when those, they were getting the patronage of the, patronage of the kings, as I mentioned. He was one of those type of sadhus. So, living at the Radha Damodar temple, whatever was offered to the deity at midday at noon, then they would bring the remnants and and give to Prabhupada that and so he ate once a day whatever the deity would would provide. And there he was writing his Bhakti Godhead magazine. And in the magazine, when he was writing about what the magazine was supposed to be about, he made this kind of a statement. And this is the extent to which, as I was saying, Bhakti Siddhanta was successful in the first meeting of, of drawing him out of Gandhi's movement, which was a big idea for young Indian men and women. He had the whole country galvanized, you know, it was a big thing. And it was important, too. I mean, they were being, you know, discriminated against and oppressed and so forth by the imperialism of Britain and uh, and uh, so forth. But this idea of Bhakti Siddhanta was much bigger. So he wrote in the magazine that nationalism, which Gandhi's movement was about, is another name for militarism it's during World War II. He said, that's all it is. It's just another name that inevitably causes conf- another material designation, uh, all of which foster friction. Inevitably. We have to transcend all transcend all material bodily designations. This is where we find love, because body forces us to be a taker, because it has needs. Well, unless we can rise above its, its demands, so to speak, and satisfy them only within the context of what's necessary for me to carry on with my bhajan, my sadhana, my spiritual life. There's some allowance for that. Obviously, we need some material sustenance. Then, uh, only to the extent that we can rise to this can we really be a giver. Otherwise, we're on the take and we're purchased by our senses, by our mind, and compromised and so forth. So at any rate, this is he was conducting himself like this and... Um, writing this back to Godhead magazine, and then he would beg Madhukari enough money to get the train to take his published, his, his, his written material to Delhi, where he would get, uh, he would beg a printer to print it, and the man just thought, oh, this poor fellow, he wants, he's so dedicated to this, and, 
And uh, so he donated the money to, to print the, the magazine. Then he would go and distribute it in the tea shops to the Indians who were all talking politics and, and so forth. And, uh, and in, in, in all this, he got a little disappointed with the Indian subcontinent continent and its preoccupation with Western ideas and so forth. And, uh, and so he, he got the idea to go outside of India. And it's not easy, even today, for an Indian to get a passport to come to America, or anybody from a third world or undeveloped, less developed, better country <laughs> than, uh, than our developed uh, so-called na- nation here. Uh, it's not so, so, so easy, and in those days, much harder. And he had no, as a sadhu, he had no ties, right? They want to see, you've got a job, you've got kids, you've got, a, you've got somebody's inviting you and so forth. And so uh, he had this, and it was a you know divine thing, an inspiration to go to, go to America, and America was. Uh, this was, um, I guess, just uh, after World War II. It you know it became the leading country. So he thought to go there. As it turned out, the great Bhakti Siddhanta, his guru, once said, "I wish that uh, I could have ten years to live in America." and distribute this Gaudi Vaishnavism. And that was before America had become the leading country in the world, while Britain was still the country, leading country. So he had some vision what America would become. And once uh, Sridhar Maharaj, my Siksha Guru, who was, a, who was a, the godbrother of, of Prabhupada, they, were, they had the same Guru, they were friends. After Prabhupada passed, I came under his guidance. He once said, he told me this, he said that Bhaktisiddhanta once expressed that he wished he had 10 years that he could live in, in America to distribute this idea. And he said, in my estimation, your guru gave him 10 years plus two because he was 12 years in America preaching. This ideal was realized through his disciple in this way. So he wanted anyway to come to America and, and he had nothing. So, uh, and he was writing in English and you know, only some educated people in India spoke English at the time. Meanwhile, he was also translating the Bhagavatam and commentary, commentating, commenting on it, and uh, he managed to get some volumes printed as a, as a beggar, as I say. And what he did is he went and he sat at... There was one Vaishnav lady who was well-to-do, Sumati Morarji, and uh, he went and sat on her, and sometimes she was said to help sadhus to do different things, so... He sent her a letter, I think, and told her he wanted to go to America. And she said, look, you're too old. You're like 70 years old, and you're living in Vrindavan. Vrindavan is a place for sadhus to retire and and go back to Godhead. It's not a time to go to America. She said, no, I want to go there for a different reason. I want to bring Vrindavan there. And make Vrindavan, as the Goswamis 500 years ago, got the patronage of the kings... I want to get the patronage of the Americans for Vrindavan, what this place is, what is Krishna Janmastam, the birthplace of Krishna, the Janmastami of Krishna that we uh, uh, Americans amongst us here are celebrating today. He wanted to make this known. And um, so what she said, you know, this, I can't. I can't in a good conscience. She had a, what she owned, it was a um, yeah, freight um, company. They would ship goods from India to other parts, and some of those boats went to America. So he asked for passage as a cargo, you know, cargo passage on the boat. It wasn't like a luxury uh, cruise liner. 
So, but she refused. She said, no, I can't in good conscience. You may die on the boat, you know. He said, better, you know, I, that, I, that I do pass in pursuing this kind of mission. That's where life is. Uh, not, you know, better to burn out than fade away. That <laughs> was his idea. So, uh, uh, but she refused. But anyway, he, what he did was he went and sat down in, on her property. He just sat there and chanted. And he wouldn't go away. He just sat, fasted, and chanted for days until she, uh, she sent him some food, you know, please, somehow she tried to pacify him. He wouldn't be pacified unless she would give, give passage. So she acquiesced, she gave in, she gave him passage on the boat, the Jaladuta was called. Um, in the water messenger, Jal means water and Dutta means messenger. So that was taking the, it was the Jaladuta, just like you have the Vishnu Dutta and you have this Dutta and that Dutta. Hangsadutta, in all the Leila of Krishna, these messengers. And uh, so this was the messenger, the, the water messenger that carried him like a big Garuda, like Krishna's bird carrier in Dwarka, across the, the ocean. Hmm? There he came, he packed what few volumes of the Bhagavatam he, could, uh, he was able to translate into, into English and comment on. And the whole way he was reading Chaitanya Charitamrita, the, the, the Chaitanya, the, it means the, it's the life and precepts of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And, and this was, this was, he was living on this. And he was old and he was sick and he had heart palpitation, heart, heart attack even, and seasick. It was a difficult voyage. And he wrote about it in private, you know, to himself a couple of times. He wrote poems about his inner experience and so forth. And so deep they are in, in meaning and spiritual aspiration. If we study that one poem aboard the Jalata, one particular one in particular, we find the whole essence of Gaudiya Vaishnavism there, the whole essence of it. Hmm? Uh, that's a whole other lecture, but uh, I have lectured on that before. But very, very beautiful, very compelling. How in a very poetic and charming and friendly way. He wrote a poem my dear, to my dear friend, Krishna, my companion. He had some friendly relationship with, with him and Leela. He made the bargaining with him in the poem. He said, and I'll say a little bit about it. He, my guru is a representative of Radharani, and Radharani is very dear to you, Krishna. My advice to you, my dear friend, he said, is that your life will become perfect if Radharani is pleased with you. He said, that's a fact. So he was in, 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 this is a fact, this is how Krishna thinks. So he knew his heart. He said, so, buddy, my dear pal, he said, my idea is this. My guru wants this mission of Chaitanya to go westward, and so I'm making an effort. Now, if you give me the power to do that, Radharani will be pleased for you, and then your life will become successful. He made this kind of negotiation with Krishna in his prayer. And as we can see the fact, from the fact that we are all sitting here, Krishna was very charmed by that. He said, take all the power you want. Here, he gave him all the shakti to do this. At that point on the boat, Pujapad Sridhar Maharaj analyzed that at that point this, uh, he was given great spiritual avesh empowerment by the principal associate of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Nityananda Prabhu, for, for whose mission within the Leela 500 years ago was to take the message of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu to the 
to the people who were like uncivilized. So here he was taking it to, that was within India. So this is to take it to the uncivilized Western world. You know, Gandhi did make a nice statement when he was asked about Western civilization, what he thought about it. He said, I think it's a great idea. When will they begin? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so anyway, uh, he got the power, the Shakti, to do that and uh, landed in the shore on, on Boston, in Boston Harbor. He said, I didn't know whether to turn left or right, but uh, there I was. He turned left and went to New York. <laughs> you know, he went south there. And uh, there, in, there, in terms of what was happening in America, the scene, what was happening, this was 1965. He went, he ended up in Greenwich Village. So that was a happening place. As I say, there was a place of the beat people and contemporary people who wanted to bring about change, who wanted to see some um, people that had grown up with toasters and washing machines and <laughs> irons and dryers and, and all the 50s, you know, conventions that were supposed to make you happy and they weren't happy. Their parents were happy and, you know, okay, understandably, they were living during the... My mother was waiting in bread lines in the, in the 1930s in the Depression and, uh, you know, her husband was in the, in the war and saw his friends, you know, Killed and so forth. They were, you know, these were difficult times. So to get some modern conveniences and so forth, you can understand why they thought it was happiness. But life goes on, and there's more to happiness than material well-being. And so we, you know, those of us from that generation, at the time, had some sense about that, and we were offbeat. The beat generation was offbeat, so to speak, from what was thought to be happiness at the time. And here was Prabhupada bringing a message of what he thought happiness was. And so it resonated to some extent with, uh, with the beat uh, generation there in the village. He lived in, he, he didn't have any, I mean, he, he actually lived in the Bowery first, which is, uh, and wherever he, he was a homeless person. He was a homeless person in whose heart there was uh, there was a house in which everybody could live, and his his his, his magnanimity, his broadness, his, his very kind of liberal vision. I mean, think of it. He was born in Calcutta in 1896. Here he is, in the midst of in Greenwich, the Bowery, and then the, the Greenwich Village. He got some attention there from some hippies. He used to go to the park, Tompkins Square Park, and chant. That he would just sit there and chant. He had a pair of these hand symbols, cartels, and he would chant. People would look and like, what is this? I mean, you can imagine in those days it was, hey, that's far out, you know, <laughs> kind of a thing. And, um, and you know, people were stoned and, uh, and you know, that can be dangerous. Uh, and uh, so people would offer him a place to stay. He'd stay there. He stayed at one guy's house and he was riding and the guy had a bad trip that night and, you know, attacked him. He had to go out, leave the house in the middle of the night and, and he was homeless, living on the, on the street, stepping over a dead person, drunk dead person, to get out of the get out of the house. So he was really completely dependent, if you will. On he put himself completely in Krishna's hands. He said, "I take this mantra, Krishna Nam. I hold on to this. Whatever it does, wherever it takes me, that's where I, you know, go." He was really living in the depths of his faith with. Really, no 
I mean, it was like going into the, for him, it was like going to the darkest, you know, Amazon jungle. Hmm? I mean, he didn't speak, it was a second language, he spoke some English, the people's ways were different. He wrote back once to a, to a, uh, a friend in India, he said, and everybody drives a car here. You know, in India, <laughs> the owners of the car drive cars. Because in India, with few people had cars, they were rich people, and they'd have a driver. You know? He said, and everybody has a car, and they drive their own car, he said. And he said, and this is New York, it's so bright at night that it's, it's, like, there's, it's, it's like, the, like daytime. There's so much light. And they're living without electricity in Vrindavan. You know, most of the time, by candlelight and so forth. And, I mean, if you hear him write about it, it's like he went to a different planet altogether. And, of course, the diet was different. He maintained his own diet, you know, vegetarian diet. And uh, that uh, was, you know, even when I was a kid, I mean, I was born in 1949. So, you know, vegetarianism was like, well, it was like homosexuality. I mean, it was like queer, hmm? Uh, and uh, people didn't know the difference. Yogurt was queer. <laughs> to speak of yoga, it was really quite queer. I mean, I remember I was a kid. I was eight years old, and um, I was born in, in New York in Catholic family at the Holy Name Hospital, <laughs> as it turns out. And uh, they moved to Chicago when I was eight years old, and I became interested in yoga. And I asked them, I want to do yoga. And they said, what are you talking about? Uh, so, um, anyway, there he was, you know, in this like foreign in- environment and not a lot of ears for, you know, what, he was, what, was in, what did India look like to, you know, American people at the time. So, but anyway, some, some hippies and beat people became interested in him and they managed to put together some money and rented a shop in uh, in the village, it was called Matchless Gifts, as it turned out. Matchless Gifts. And there he would uh, give Bhagavad Eventually, he got a footing, as I say there, and he would give Bhagavad Gita class. And, and, um, and in this way, in kind of, which is, I'd say, like, kind of characteristic of our branch of the tree of this Chaitanya and Radhakrishna lineage, he was making a contemporary presentation of uh, Gaudiya Vaishnavism. He sent some disciples to San Francisco, new, new students there that were, came from the village, and they started the temple, and they invited him there and put on a mantra rock show with the Grateful Dead, and I don't know who else was there, I forget, Moby, Moby Dick and I don't know, Country Joe and the Fish and some of those kind of... You know, in, in you know, San Francisco, you know, at the, what was it called? I was there in 1969. Haight Ashbury, yeah, and the, what was the, you know, the, where they do the, did the concerts? Avalon Ballroom. Avalon Ballroom, yeah, and there was a couple, yeah. So there he was, and then the Fillmore, I was thinking of, yeah, that's where we used to go. Yeah, so, <laughs> there, you know, there he was on stage at the Fillmore, or the Avalon Ballroom, one of the two, and, after this group or that group, he would he did the you know, chant Hare Krishna. Mm-hmm. Um, I myself met uh, the, the first contact of the mission in in um, at uh, Woodstock, the famous festival at Woodstock. There is where I met the, the his disciples, and 
as the beginning of my uh, make, where I made my connection in this life with him in a beginning way. So anyway, he was in that milieu and having success and so forth. And and um, he had a way uh, of talking about the tradition that was um, interesting in that it was a, a little bit black and white, but he did it for a reason. Uh, yeah, I can see I'm not very black and white in my kind of presentation about it. And there's a lot of shades of gray to, you know, to reality. Uh, but he he did that for a reason because he was trying to create adhikar eligibility for bhakti, and he needed to speak about it in such a way that people would kind of come away from imaginary kind of spirituality and you know uh, um, and kind of get a get a get a grip on a handle on practice and so forth. You know, there, some teachers would say, and appropriately so, that that. Um, Attachment to your practice is also, you know, uh, the last stage of illusion or something like that. And then people would say, yeah, so I'm not going to practice, you know, I'm going to be renounced or something like that. So there was a fair amount of that kind of stuff, too. Then some teachers would teach like that. And it's not a wrong teaching necessarily. There's some truth to that, but it could, that those things can be misapplied. So he managed to talk about it in such a way that, anyway, many people came on board and they became very attached to him. I mean, we were... You know, we were hippies, so we were uh, we were not ready to come under the rule of anybody. You know, we were rebellious people at the time, but we came under the, his rules, and he had some strict rules, like you couldn't take any drugs, you know, no smoking. Not, and that wasn't that popular, but some smoke was popular. None of no smoking and uh, no you know no drugs and no. He wanted the students to be celibate for the most part, unless they were married and. These were, you know, this was the free love, you know, time. So they had a lot of power to get us to come under those laws, if you will. But it wasn't really like that. It wasn't really like following laws. What it was like was, was we loved him because he loved us in a way that we had never experienced love before. And to me, it was like being with the closest friend, like a friend of for. E- eternal friend who had like returned to pick me up, you know, who was left behind in the in the last life. The first time I met him, that was my experience. Like, old friend has come to collect me up, and I had no, you know, I felt no no distance from him whatsoever. And so he just exuded. He had the power to come into a room and fill it with bliss just by his presence, without saying anything. We would melt and cry. Just to just just to see him, just to be in the room with him. So um, I mean, just exuding love and ecstasy, and he would have to like, as I say, wrestle himself down from that to talk to us about it and try to try to talk about it. He didn't know what Western society was very much. When he was in India, begging to get enough money to print his magazine and sell it in the tea shops. He found out America, about America by reading Jehovah's Witnesses' tracts that have been. <laughs> you know, they think like this. Okay, we'll present it like that. You know, is that how he was? <laughs> so he was groping, you know, to, to try to figure out how people think and whatnot, and uh, and uh, you know, he did a you know fair job of it. But really, what he did was he just in, in, inundated with his, us with his love. All of his logic, you know, it doesn't hold up that well in terms of some of his arguments, his principal arguments and so forth, they're, 
they're real and, of course, tangible. The difference between the self and the body, between consciousness and the experience, and that which is experienced, and how to, as far as the siddhanta, the real teachings go, and so forth. But basically, he kind of like closed our minds down and our thinking down in a healthy way that our heart could open and he could pour his own faith that he was living on in there, that there's life in there's life in faith and there's life in, in applying oneself in relation to these ideas. Um, they always are a little challenging to let go and hold on to something kind of invisible, it sounds good and so forth, but, it, but it's a challenge. But it, the more you let go, the more you find there's, tan, there's real firm ground on the other side. It was this side that didn't have the firm ground. This will be taken out from under your feet at any moment. So that's always a challenge. And, uh, and he kind of presented that to us and exemplified a person who had himself taken up the challenge in such a big way. And, and he was very unassuming also. I mean, he had great spiritual power and he, he was only about five feet four. That's a pretty small person. But he held his head up like he was like 12 feet tall. Not in a proud way, but like, if you ever see him, he was like very dignified and... Uh, because he wanted to bring dignity to the soul. This was his idea. He saw the souls in an undignified condition, succumbing to their greed and lust and the bodily conditions in, a, in, a, in an embarrassing condition. He saw what, what they could be. And if you could sit with him, you would feel what you were and what you could be at the same time. These two different, you know, kind of like what you were by your attachments. It all become exposed how petty it was. And, and what you could be at the same time, these two this dynamic uh, differences, uh, different uh, feelings would come in you. And then you'd be in, humbled in terms of where you were, but proud to be associated with such an idea, such a high and dignified idea of the self. Hmm? And so he sought to bring like dignity to the, to the self, and he held his head up, and he looked like, uh, he, um, like a kind of aristocratic, and there he was just in his tattered robes and, and so forth. And, um, and, you know, he didn't tell us to dress like this. We started to dress like this because we wanted to be like him. He said, okay, we'll go with that. And like myself, I, 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 I um, met the devotees, and then, I, and I, then I, I didn't... In those days, they were just ecstatic themselves, so it's, it was hard to figure out how to join them. They were just... So I just went home and shaved my head. I thought, so I guess I should do that, because these people do that. And uh, then I had a book that was, was about Krishna Leela, so I would read from it and, and teach it to my friends, whatever I understood from it. And I thought, that's what you do. Hmm? And I would chant, of course. And then a friend of mine, uh, was a gay, he was actually a gay fellow that uh, was one of the people living in our house. And, he, and for fun, this was in the Bay Area, we were living in the Santa Cruz Mountains at that time, He'd put on this orange-colored polyester robe and go out in the street, you know, and he would imitate the devotees. He wasn't doing it in a derogatory way, but he was just having fun. So he woke up one morning, I had a shaved head, and I'd been talking about Krishna. He said, you know, you need this more than I do. You know, he gave me... <laughs> there, I, there I was. Had the robe. And then some of Prabhupada's disciples, they came from Los Angeles to Santa Cruz, and I was living in the Santa Cruz Mountains in the Redwoods there, and they heard about me. They came to Santa Cruz. They were going to open a center. They heard that this is this guy up there. He has a shaved head. He wears a robe. And 
So they went up and found me and said, you're doing it all wrong. You know, you, you it, I got to do it like this, you know. So, but, um, but anyway, I, you know, I was doing some things right, and, um, I guess. And um, anyway, I met them. Then I stayed with them for three months, and Prabhupada came to America. He was going to America and, and, and to India back and forth a little bit at that time, and he came to America. And so then they brought me to Los Angeles to see him, and he blessed me at that, uh, on that occasion, initiated me and took me under his wing. But uh, the point is that, that I think that he, his success was his own um, love for Krishna, that naturally, if we have it, it extends to all the parts and parcels, if you will, of Krishna, all living beings, and we could, it was palpable how you could feel it. I mean, he would say things, like, you know, that were like, he was very charming. I mean, he would say things that weren't politically correct sometimes, you know, or he wasn't like on the cutting edge of the social norms. I mean, he's conservative in a sense from India, but very liberal from India's point of view. This guy's a liberal. So get him out of here, you know, because India, religious India could be very conservative. On our side, it might look a little conservative, but but he would, but, but uh, even he'd say those things and he would, uh, and the reporters would be charmed and so forth. And so he had uh, this, he was like very much personified the uh, love that he was absorbed in and it would extend to us. And that's how we came under his rule, so to speak. They weren't, now people talk about some of the rules that he gave and following them, but we weren't following rules. We were following his his love. The love was contagious and we were, then we would do whatever was would facilitate that, what would, would be conducive to that. Something that, like that was the idea. So anyway, this is the day that he, appeared in the world, and, and he's appearing still in our lives. We're all here because of his great, um, you know, really, sacrifice. Even from a spiritual point of view, he was living in a holy place, a good place to retire and to pass from the world, surrounded by sadhus and people chanting and so forth in a temple to pass from the world. He came here with the risk of dying on the boat, surrounded by, you know, just the, the captain who's cooking chicken, you know, on, on, the, on, the, on the passage and uh, didn't understand a thing about this, wasn't simp- really very sympathetic and, uh, and uh, you know, landing in America and foreign souls, uh, foreign soil and could have died in the Bowery and, and, and so he took uh, but he had some confidence that by trying to do the bidding of his guru then his, uh, his life would be successful was in a big way so I'll stop there Thank you for listening. Does anyone have a question? You mentioned during the Nandotsava festival that at the end of the Vrat, that Nandavaraj and Nishoda might get, that Narayan appeared to them, but Krishna was their son. So why would it have been Narayan that appeared to them in the dream? Because they did a Vrat for Narayan, to please Narayan, to please God. God appeared to him in a dream and said, you'll have a son, like a son more beautiful than me, don't worry about it. I thought, what well, God says so, I guess it's so. And that's the idea that Krishna is more beautiful and more charming than Narayan. So, anything else for Krishna? I realized that a while back when we were chanting Pranam mantras that they weren't really memorials, not a memorial type of tribute. They're actually, they're still alive. They're still alive. They're still alive. And, um, I'm just, and obviously they're absorbed in um, but do, are they to some degree um, 
still aware of us? Do they check up on us? Or <laughs> is there some reciprocation? I mean, obviously, we have access to them through you, but is there, is there some other reciprocation? Yeah, you cannot count that out. That's why we go and sit at the samadhi that in where the, the saints are entombed, for example. There's power there. There's two aspects to the, to the, to the guru or to any uh, devotee. They have a practitioner's body, sadhakadeha, and a siddhadeha. So a siddhadeha is an internal body that, in which they participate in Krishna Leela. The sadhakadeha is an outward body. That be, the siddhadeha is like a gold body. The sadhakadeha is like a gold-plated body. They've used their body, material body, in such a way that it's, it acts like, looks like gold, it acts like gold. And, and even though it appears to pass, we keep the picture of that form hmm, that's placed on the altar. That form, normally in India, the, the last rites are involved cremation. But the sadhu, who's perfected himself or herself, it's considered that that perfection has overflowed into the sadhakadeha in a way that it, it's, a, it's a worshipable. So they don't um, cremate the body, but they put it inside of a, what's, what's called samadhi. It's called a samadhi. Samadhi means, of course, trans, entering into spiritual perfection. So the, the tomb is called a samadhi, and that's um, honored. So that sadhakadeha, that has a place in eternity also. We look at it as like, in our tradition, like an extension of the Gaur-lila hmm, form. Like if you take Rupa Goswami, he appears as a young maiden, milk maiden in the Siddhadeha in Krishna-lila. And in Gaur-lila, he appears as Rupa Goswami, just kind of a youthful, always youthful Rupa Goswami. So the Guru Sadakadeha has a place in the Gaur Lila also. And Gaur Lila is the, is the outreach of Krishna Lila, right? The magnanimity. So from there, they're energizing us. And we can draw sympathy and, and grace through the Guru Parampara. But it does involve acknowledging the current you know, link, so to speak. Ignoring that, you won't get any, any grace. If you go around that, no. That's the system. They've left some service behind, and who's doing that service? Without that, you won't get any sympathy. That'll be only a hallucination and imagination and turn to kind of a fanaticism. So that's the system, parampara. And yes, all their grace is available, living and available to us. that help? Another question? Yes? Did Prabhupada ever reveal anything about his eternal spiritual life, like that golden body that you just mentioned? Did he ever reveal or manifest anything that can help us understand like his position in the spiritual world, nourishing Krishna? Have you read our book, Oh My Friend? It's all that information is there. Have you heard of it? Yeah, it's all there. So many things he said, yeah. He said many things about his spiritual aspiration, what type of seva he wanted to do in the Leela, so what he aspired for. He told his disciples he was in Sakyarasa on numerous occasions, different disciples. He said, my guru is in Manjari Bhav, I'm in relationship with Krishna as a friend. In trance, on different occasions, semi-trance, he orally spoke aspiration to Enter the um, um, cowherding Leela of Krishna, mm-hmm. carry his lunch, 
and so forth, those kind of things. Yeah, many, quite a bit of uh, that, actually. It left the details, of course, to be realized, but he showed a strong affinity for Sakiras. He aspired to, in his prayer on the Jaladut, he aspired to enter into Sakiras. When will I run and fall on the ground and roll in the dust in the, through the various forests, herding cows? Tomare milane bhai abarse shukopai. Oh, my dear companion Krishna, when will I ride in the morning into the forests? He said, when or when will that day be mine? When I can enter the forest with you. Tomara Milane by Abarshe Shukapai. How's it go? Gocharane Gori Dimbor. Gocharane Gori Herding cows. When can I go in a cow herding Leela with you? And frolicking, falling in the ground and different shows of play and... Um, and uh, all those kind of sporting activities. Kotavani, two nice words. Kotavani, chute chute, banikai, lutaputi. Chuti chuti, lutaputi. It even sounds like Sakirasa. It is all it's, it's a childhood, you know, youthful um, pastime with Krishna. So this, I, this is my, when oh when will that day be mine when I can enter into that? That's a very strong reference. And then many, many other things. And that book is nicely com- compiled there all those numerous incidences of his sharing and uh, consciously and unconsciously glimpses into his uh, ideal. You know, there have been some interesting talks, and I say that myself because I find them interesting, and a lot of things I say in these talks I've never said before or thought about it like that before, and I, you know, honestly, it's 50% at least your interest, and, uh, and you know, you've come a long distance, some of you, and... Uh, the accommodations are a little bit rustic here and so forth, so I really am uh, inspired by that. I appreciate your, your devotion and just it brings uh, devotion to me. So uh, it's all, uh, you know, bodhayantas parasparam tushyanti charamanti cha. It's a group project here. <laughs> Revelation, insight, and spiritual inspiration. <clears throat> okay. Sisi Gaunatananda Ki Jai